0: I believe in revivalism and I believe that it is the only hope left for the United States. It really is going to take a revival from on high, a move of God's Holy Spirit. And that's been the history of the United States. God has set the United States as such a unique nation because it's been built on the foundations of the Judeo-Christian ethic, the Bible. And what has continually saved, if I could use that word, the United States, it has been a continual outpouring of revivalism that has been the gifting or the grace that God has given to the United States. That revival hits and restores moral conduct and faith in God back to this nation. And so when I go back and I look at famous people, I think of people like Jonathan Edwards who preached that sermon in a small church in Boston when he began to speak about sinners in the hands of an angry God. And the second Great Awakening revival began to happen, and that was in late 1700s. Well, Jonathan Edwards coined this phrase, disinterested benevolence, and one of his protégés, Samuel Hopkins, picked it up. And along with Hopkins bringing it forward, then there was another revivalist that came after Edwards, and that was Charles Finney. And if you've read any of Finney's reports of revival as he was going through New York, well, Finney as well taught this doctrine of disinterested benevolence. So I think there's got to be something to it if it was birthed out of a number of revivals. You see, revival is one thing, but revivals are very difficult to sustain. Because they're so powerful that they mess up ordinary life. And you can't have your life messed up real long because you've got to eat and sleep and work and maintain life and industry and everything else. So a revival is to inject the power of God into a society so that that society will repent and get straight again with God and get on with life in a moral manner. And the, the I would say the mechanism for that was disinterested benevolence and basically what they said was this through this doctrine to reform the world by example you act generously and wisely disinterested benevolence is to walk and act like jesus if revivals to hit the thing that will sustain the change of a moral climate is that the people of god will act like jesus Can I say that the church is not acting like Jesus? It hasn't in the last 50 to 70 years. If it had, we'd have a very different country and a different climate of society, but we're not acting like Jesus. You know why? We're self-interested. The church is very self-interested. The people of God are self-centered. We go to conferences for our own self. We even want gifts for our purposes so that we're noticed and we're used. And that's the whole point of disinterested benevolence. That word disinterested, if you look at the definition, can be not interested or indifferent to something. But it's not disinterested in benevolence. That's not the concept. It's like, yeah, I'm not interested in being nice and good to people. That's not what it's talking about. A disinterested benevolence in 19th century language in the 1800s means you are not concerned about yourself. The first part, disinterested, is I am not self-centered and I'm not consumed with me, but I'm concerned with the benevolence of God. And that's what happened in these revivals. Disinterested benevolence, there was such an outpouring of God that the people of God were so dramatically changed, they stopped living for themselves and they lived to the glory of God. So much so that they began missions. They began to move in their society. And the abolition of slavery came about because of these strong moves of God that this country cannot sustain itself if it will endure slavery any longer. And it could no longer be intolerant to alcoholism. And so it moved with the temperance movement. It brought homeless missions and orphanages. All of these being moved in such a powerful, dramatic way. Ministries like the Salvation Army and all these benevolent ministries that were helping the poor, those who were abused, those who were offended, and those ruins of society. The church stood up and said, no more. We're going to do something about it. They marched in the streets. They went to their neighborhoods. They went out and those who were poor and sick and they took them in. The church was being the church. As James says, true religion is caring for the widows and the orphans. And the church rose to do that. And that was disinterested benevolence. In other words, I'm no longer going to be consumed with my income, with my finance, with my climbing the corporate ladder. My interest is the benevolence and goodness of God for the people that are around me. Now that's radical. And it's really radical in our culture today, isn't it? Because we're all about us. Let me tell you a story about a man named Abraham. Abraham understood that he was in covenant with God. This is an amazing concept. And so when he came to Abraham, he says, you know what, I want to inform you that I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And he said, I think you need to understand that. And Abraham begins to discuss things. He knows that Lot is there, doesn't he? So he's got a vested interest. His nephew lives there, and he's a little concerned. And so in Genesis 18, 23, he says this, Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Is that what you're going to do? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it for you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? And so what God did, if you consider this, God came to Abraham to stir up in Abraham his understanding of who God is. Have you ever had God do that to you? Where you've been questioned to your definition of Him? You've been challenged to consider, will not the God of all the earth do right? I think we have to have that discussion quite often in our minds. When we don't understand what's going on and what's being affected, we have to go back to figure out, is God going to do the right thing in this? No, He he helps us understand who he is. And that's what's happening in this verse. He's helping Abraham understand who he is. And, and God says, of course, if there's 50 righteous, I'll spare the city. And so then Abraham considers that and he goes, Wow, Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah, okay, how about 40? And then he, God says, certainly. I will do what is right. That's my nature. Okay, how about 30? 20? 10? God says, yes, at 10. And what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? It got destroyed, right? Were there 10 righteous in that city? No, there were not, because God said he would spare it if there were 10. What does that tell you? There wasn't 10. 10. And what I'm trying to get at is this. It's a question that you and I must answer. We should not back down from, and we should always tell this world that the judge of all the earth must do right. He will always do right. No, the judge of all the earth will do right. Can I tell you that everything that has happened in your life and everything that is going to happen and that all that's going on in this earth, God is doing right? Now the problem is, our perspective is so skewed and small, we can't see the rightness of God. And so what you have to understand about the attribute of God is that He is good. There is no shadow of of turning. There's no darkness in Him. There's no evil of Him. There is no injustice in Him. Everything He does must be, absolutely must be, good and right. He is never too late. He is never wrong. He is never confused. He's never ambiguous. Everything God does is good. We must believe this. Because if you don't, you've redefined the very nature of God. And if God is good and His love is perfect, the church or the body of Christ must align itself with that very virtue. And can I tell you what the greatest remedy to the evil of the earth is? His church. His church. We say, well... It's Jesus. Well, guess who his body is touching earth? His church. It's time for us to take up the slack here and the responsibility for the kingdom of God. For the kingdom of God. And that's what disinterested benevolence calls out for. When the revivals came in the second Great awakening. And the Finney revivals came. This whole move of disinterested benevolence. In other words, the social reform that took place because the church took its spot in society. This nation changed. And you see, God will always do good. What is righteous and what is benevolent, we must too. If It is God's will to always do right. It should be our will to always do what is right. Now, disinterested benevolence is free of self-interest. Listen to some of these verses, 1 Corinthians 13, 5. It's the definition of love, and in the middle of that definition of love, you remember, love is patient, love is kind, love never judges. It says this, love is not self-seeking. For God so loved the world, He gave the Son, that whosoever should believe in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. Is that benevolent? God so loved the world, is that is, is, is that disinterested benevolence? Was He protecting Himself? Absolutely not. He gave Himself completely for us. It cost Him His life. And out of His goodness, He did that for every human being. Is God benevolent or not? The blood of God, the Word of God became flesh. Jesus died for the sins of the world. And in doing this, He showed disinterested benevolence. In other words, He was not interested in what He could get out of this. He was not interested in what He could gain. He did this because He loves us. And so the church has got to have a revival of God's nature. If we want revival, it's not because we want to feel God. That's self-interest. It's not because I want more gifts. That's self-interest. It's not because I want a better neighborhood. That's self-interest. It's because I want the nature of God born in me so that I can reach the people in this area and circumference of my life. We are so entrenched, brothers and sisters, I'm not trying to bring a downer, I'm trying to bring a revelation, but we are so entrenched in ourselves, we've forgotten what revival's for. We've forgotten what God living in us is all about. We've made it all about us. This whole concept is that love is not self-seeking. Now listen to what Finney says. God is purely and disinterestedly benevolent. He does not make his creatures happy for the sake of thereby promoting his own happiness, but because he loves their happiness and chooses it for its own sake. Not that he does not feel happy in promoting the happiness of his creatures, but that he does not do it for the sake of his own gratification. What he's saying is, in the book of Ephesians, it says he lavishes His love on us. Now, He lavishes His love on us because He loves us. Not because He can't wait to get something back. He just plain loves us. He is good to us always because that is His nature. He cannot be bad towards you. His love cannot do that, cannot stand for that. Well, sometimes He disciplines me. Yeah, Hebrews chapter 12, discipline as a father would discipline a child because he loves you and because he's wanting you to grow out of your immaturity so you can know his love in a deeper level. And so God pours out his goodness on our lives always, 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 not for what he gets back, but just because he loves And that heart and that nature has got to be birthed in us. We've got to begin to live and discover that realm of benevolence. Disinterested benevolence. Not what can I get out of this. Not what kickback can I get. What kind of a good feeling. It's just what I do because it's what God does. I'll stop on the street when I see someone having trouble or a problem, not because I've got a vested interest in it, but because they need help. And God says, you help. This is God's heart. God's heart is always there moving for us. God is good. You see, let me get into it a little further. Let's go further. Look at 1 Corinthians. It's on your outline. 1 Corinthians 10.24. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. That is radical to this world. Absolutely radical to the thinking of this world. But even the church has gotten to a place where this is a radical statement in the church. No one should seek his own good, but the good of others. When you come to church, brothers and sisters, do you come thinking, what can I give someone today? Can you give and impart? This is God's character and nature. And so what is so radical is no one should seek his own good but the good of others. And and I believe that when revival comes, this kind of a thing moves in the people of God that it so radically changes the church that it moves outside of the four walls and begins to radically change its community. We stop our cars when we see people in trouble. We move over down the aisles at Myers or Walmarts when we see people in need. We break down in prayer for people who are hurting or people who need something. We help wherever we can help. There's a move of God in such a way, I believe, I believe with all my heart that is coming, that the church is going to be so crazy benevolent, so crazy good, that we're so disinterested in ourselves that we can't wait to promote God's interests. Wow. You see, that's true, true revival that will carry on into a society. Paul goes on down in verse uh, 33b, For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Paul understood this. Paul knew that we should not seek our own good, but the good of others. Esteem others more highly than ourselves. And he says, you know what? I'll work day and night so I don't have to take from somebody so that I can pour everything I have into them. It's it's just his heart. He knew the love of God. Now, would you turn with me to Luke chapter 6? And let's get Jesus' take on this. Now, the reason I'm preaching this is because the seed of this is already in us. The spirit of what I'm preaching is already here. It just needs to be activated. And faith comes by what? hearing the word and so our faith to move in this disinterested benevolence is going to become activated in us and it's going to become promoted in us and we're going to be finding ourselves moving in this in this way and we've got to get past the thing of what's in it for me now let's look at luke again luke chapter 6 and jesus says this in verse 27 But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is it to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies... Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. He's saying, Be like me. Be imitators, Paul says this, be ye imitators of God. See, we would say, now wait a minute, I'm not to be a doormat, and you want me to give money to people who I don't expect to repay back, and he says, that's what your father does. So, your enemies, be good to them. Lend money not just to the people you expect to get it back, but even to those who you won't expect to get it back. Disinterested benevolence. I believe with all my heart. If God says, if you give a cup of cold water to someone, you'll not lose your reward, then every act of goodness and benevolence will be counted for. Again, this this is hard for us to get through because we self-protect so much. And there are abusive people who could care less about your theology and your disinterested benevolence. I'm just going to rip you off. And God says, don't worry about that. He said, I'm forming you. This is the key to it all. I'm forming you to be a son of the Most High God. That's what you should be interested in. For you shall be known. What does he say? For then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. That's what he's training us. All right, don't worry about the hundred bucks, the thousand bucks, the three thousand bucks, the ten thousand bucks that someone's gonna rip you off in your lifetime. Don't worry about someone scamming you. Don't worry about being slapped on the right cheek, give them your left. Don't worry about your coat and your favorite one that you just gave away. Don't worry about any of that because what I'm training you is how to rule and reign with me for eternity. Now, how much is that worth to you? You need to know my heart. And you need to know how to be good. God is a just God. We believe in justice. We believe in righteousness. We believe in right and wrong. There's a balance in all of this. Certainly God gave the sword to the government so that we could have civil obedience. But we are to be benevolent. Let's go on. Philippians 2, 3 and 5. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then he goes in to verse 5 saying, who being equal in God's nature, humbled himself and became a man even unto death. But you see what he's saying here? Don't be self-interested, selfish, ambition, vain conceit. Consider others better than yourself. Now, I'm so excited because I'm seeing this happen among pastors and church leaders with each and with one Detroit and and starting to get out there with other pastors and it's a miracle. Pastors are coming together, praying together, working together for the community. And for the sake of it, sitting around a table with a Presbyterian pastor, a Pentecostal pastor, uh, you know, all different denominations, and they have one interest, Jesus. And what's going to happen is disinterested benevolence is beginning to flourish in our community. The EACH campaign got the churches out there. We cleaned up 8 Mile. We cleaned up Gratiot. We cleaned up Kelly. We went out and built homes. We went into the cities and began to touch people's lives. And that's disinterested benevolence. It wasn't this church's name on it or that church's name on it. No church's name, but Jesus Christ was on it. And we were doing disinterested benevolence. No one had a consideration of self. It's exciting. I'm telling you, it's coming. Romans 13:8, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. King James says, Owe no man anything save love. In other words, except love. We're to owe, get this, we are to owe everyone. Love. Why would we do that? Because God so loved the world. He gave His Son. He demonstrated His love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Because it's the character of God. God is good. Will not the Creator of the universe do what is right? Yes. Will not His body act appropriately and do what is right? Yes, that's the answer we want. Turn your page over. Disinterested benevolence may best be described as the unselfish seeking of the highest good or well-being of God and others for its own sake. Just for goodness. Goodness is a lost word. What is good? Good has moral purity. Good is has no wrong in it. Has no selfishness in it. God is good. It is not based on our emotional love or drawn from our opinion, but from truly agape love of the Spirit. This is where the rubber meets the road. When Jesus says, love your enemy, right? Give to those who are uh, abusive to you. People who call you names, you're... To, to love them, they curse you, you bless them. This is hard because emotionally, I can't do this. Emotionally, no, nah, mm-mm. See, I call them my enemies because guess what? I don't like these people. They're my enemy. So how are you going to have me emotionally care for them? He didn't ask you to emotionally care for them. He asked you to do good for the sake of God. It's about you and God and displaying the benevolence of God for your enemy's sake. That's what it is. And so this is something that has to come from the Spirit. This is something that isn't going to just emotionally happen for you. Because you and I, honestly, we're not equipped with it. He equips us with it. It's something that has to go in the realm of the Spirit. And so we need to be prayed up. When you go to work tomorrow... Take an extra five minutes in the car and begin to pray. Could you turn the radio off before you get there and spend some time saying, God, I need to be benevolent today. I need to be able to be good, to be good for your sake. This is something we can't emotionally do, so let's go on. Emotional love makes me feel good. I feel connection and am satisfied because of what it does for me. But agape love, spirit love, is infused with power and it changes everything it touches. And so there, there is a goodness. We've got to be careful about self-righteousness. You know, there are people who hate Jesus and they hate what we stand for. And so we don't get into fights with Him. We don't shout them down. We don't yell at Him and say, You're going to hell. You're just a loser anyways. You can't do that. That's not the goodness of God. The goodness of God is weeping over their soul. The goodness of God says they're lost like you used to be. And their form of sin, it doesn't matter what their form of sin was, yours was just as filthy. Who are you to judge them when my benevolence and goodness is poured out for you? It was poured out for them. You see, we've got to begin seeing in the Spirit, they're angry at you because they're wounded by their sins. And so this is a deep move of God's own goodness moving in you and I. He's ready to entrust us with this kind of goodness. It's amazing. It's right around the corner for us, people. It's coming. It's right around the corner for us to begin moving in such a way in this community that we're going to begin pouring out such goodness. You're going to begin identifying Christians, not because they got a fish on their bumper or on their sweater, but because you're going to see the goodness of God in people. This is moving in the church. The Spirit of God is moving in this way throughout the entire church. It's saturating. Its level is coming out. And you're beginning to see Christians identified by who they are acting like. Father, it's exciting. We used to be in a time where you knew Christians because of all the Christian paraphernalia they wore. But now we're wearing Jesus. And now we're wearing disinterested benevolence. Now I close with this. This is a caution. This kind of movement and disinterested benevolence can just simply become social gospel. And it's not for that purpose. It's sad what's happened to so much of the disinterested benevolence that came up in the 1800s. It's sad what happened to the Salvation Army. That was a fiery army. Their symbol was fire and salvation. And they preached the gospel. Now it's been muted down into help the poor. It's good to help the poor, but they've lost the element of what they were preaching And many of the missions and many of the movements and many of the churches that in fact came out of the 1800s, the Methodists and the Presbyterians and the firebrand preaching of deliverance and salvation got into so much social gospel that they diluted the power of the message and it just became a good works-based thing. And I'm saying that is not what we're looking for. As you remember, Paul said in the scripture, I give and esteem others so that I may save some. And so this is not to be diluted into a social gospel, but a demonstration of the power of Christ's love unto the salvation of souls. That's our motivation.